thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Have you ever wondered what it was like to fly in World War II or what it was like to escort bombers across Europe and engage with and defeat enemy fighters? Well, this week on the show, we cover the iconic P-51 Mustang and discuss just that and much, much more. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 116. Drop in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, former U.S. Air Force F-16 pilot, Trevor Boswell. Welcome, everyone. This is Boat coming back at you with another look into our Warbird series. It's been a bit of a stretch since I was last on the show, and a bit of airline training, some air shows, and the start of summer will do that to you, plus a little military reserve duty thrown in there, and that's been keeping me pretty busy. So I appreciate the reprieve to get that all squared away, but now we're back at it here on the podcast. So first off, I did want to uh, acknowledge the elephant in the room, and obviously a few days ago I put out a little bit of a message there for uh, Jello and his uh, home life situation with his brother Rocky. Obviously after his uh, motorcycle accident, we lost Rocky, but we started that Rocky Aiello Memorial Fund to help out. And I'm happy to report that you guys and the rest of the world that knew Rocky stepped up and well exceeded our uh, fairly small goal there of $1,000 to help out the family financially. And I just want to personally thank all of you, the listeners out there from the outpouring of uh, messages and posts that I saw online, as well as the dollar amount that I saw in the account there. You guys just did so much for the Aiello family and you well outdid yourself. So thank you all for being there for him. I know Jello, I've spoken to him and he has appreciated everything coming in. Please keep him and his family in your uh, thoughts and prayers and he'll be back soon. Should be hopefully back on the next episodes, but please keep him in your thoughts and uh, he'll be back on the airwaves shortly. But moving on to lighter news, for those that aren't uh, fully in the know here at the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we're part of the BVR Productions Network, and as such, we try to do our best to support the other shows within the network. You know, that's through sharing of guests or topic ideas and other bits of collaboration like we are uh, looking to do today. And so fortunately for me, I get to have the host of one of our network partners on with me. It's the host of the Afterburn Podcast, John Rain Waters. Rain, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. This is great. You know what? We're fortunate enough to live like 15 minutes apart, maybe 20 (laughs) minutes or so. And we know each other a little bit further back than just the podcast. What was your first introduction to me? It's such a small world, right? In the aviation world. But when I was going through the F-16B course, you happened to be there at Luke flying the F-16 as well. So it is kind of crazy. I mean, it was a blink of an eye. We were together at Luke Air Force Base, and now here we are living 15 minutes apart. Yeah, in Georgia, of all places. I know you're from here. I am definitely not, but uh, I love it, and I'm happy to be here. And I'm so happy to be able to get together with you today. But 
for our listeners here on the show, they may not listen to your podcast, the Afterburn Podcast. So as you like to say in your show, what's your elevator pitch? Who are you? Yeah. Where are you coming from? And what are you all about? Yeah, turn me in the hot seat there. Okay. That's right. Yeah, I appreciate that. But you know, I have the host of the Afterburn Podcast. I was an F-16 pilot in the Air Force, now flying big old planes around the world. Through the Afterburn Podcast, my goal is just to bring people together, come out, share stories. Obviously, it's very heavy aviation-centric. I tend to mix it in there. I've had former Green Berets fire captains, all sorts of walks of life that come out and share their journey and some of their experiences through life. I love listening to it. And like you said, the breadth of types of folks and types of backgrounds that are out there is a little bit more widespread than what we focus on here on the fighter pilot podcast, which I think is a good thing. It's great to see different ways to get into aviation, different types of aviation. So you kind of brushed over it. You're an F-16 guy like me. What did you do before F-16s? Where did you go to school and what got you into the Air Force? Yeah. So as you mentioned, I grew up in Georgia. I was actually fortunate to grow up in an aviation community, which was my push into aviation. My first flight was September 10th, 2001 in a Cessna. Obviously, the next day was kind of a catalyst for pushing me into the military. And I was able to kill two birds with one stone and pursue my passion to serve my country and be able to fly. Went to Georgia Tech, did ROTC. And the long story short, I was a FAPE, so first assignment instructor pilot at Columbus Air Force Base, teaching people to fly the T-6, and then eventually moved on to the F-16. I did one full operational assignment at Shaw Air Force Base, and as I was getting ready to leave there to go back to be an instructor in the B course, I was hired to be the F-16 demo pilot. So I spent my last two and a half years on active duty going across the globe, putting F-16 through its paces at air shows. So it was a pretty good deal. That does sound like a a very good deal. If you ask me, (laughs) I've seen the show since you've left and it's a very good one. And it offers up a very unique perspective into the world of military aviation that I don't think we've really touched on here on the fighter pilot podcast. You talked about going all around the world. What's like the most exotic place that you think you went? It was Columbia. So Rio Negro, Columbia, you know, I, did not know a lot about Columbia before I went there. Sure. There's a lot of watching narcos was my oh, lead sure. to, but yeah. it is such a beautiful country that people are amazing. That's pretty awesome. How many airplanes would you bring with you on a show like that? So typically just two okay. on that show. We brought two. We did a couple shows where we'd bring three. If we knew, for instance, the Super Bowl flyover, we brought three jets because we know we uh, need it. Kind of a we, no fail mission. Yeah. We had to make this happen. Yeah. So usually it was just two jets. That's pretty awesome. And I know I am jealous <laughs> and I'm sure some of the listeners out there are definitely jealous as well. Some of the other cool stuff that that opportunity afforded you though was, and partly why I'm bringing you here on the show today, because you got to participate in something called a heritage flight. Is that correct? Yep. What is that? So hands down, the best part of being a demo pilot is the heritage flight. So there are a select group of civilians, roughly nine okay. and the heritage air force heritage flight foundation is funded through a private person who's just very well off and loves air force, loves aviation, as well as all these guys who fly it. But we go out there and showcase American air power for the past 70 years. So after a F 16 demo or an F 22 demo, the last 15 minutes, the demo pilot will rejoin with a Mustang, a P 38, an F 86, a P 40, and they'll go out there and fly for about 15 minutes through a set profile again, to kind of showcase where air power started and where it is today, which is pretty cool. That's amazing for those that have seen it. And for myself as well, I know it's a beautiful thing to see. It's staggering how size wise, how different the size of the aircraft are. What's the most challenging thing you'd say is flying in those formations. I think you can appreciate this, the speed difference. Yeah. So that 16 doesn't like going slow. That last maneuver in F 16 demo, you're doing about 600 knots. Okay. 
And then you have to slow down to about 220 knots. Yeah. And the jet's just yelling at you the entire time. Sure. So it doesn't like it. But one thing I do like to highlight too, and again, I think you can appreciate this. It's really cool. It's like rejoining on a Mustang. In yeah. an F-16 cockpit, you can actually hear that Merlin motor just humming away That's awesome. next to you. So um, That's awesome. <laughs> one of the coolest things I, yeah, I would no, ever want to experience. No doubt. Did you get to ride in a P-51? Actually, the best syllabus uh, requirement in the Air Force is the fact that you have to have a backseat ride in a Mustang. Wow. So, <laughs> Wow. Just stop. Just stop right now. That's unfair. Best syllabus requirement ever. That's amazing. Well, that is a perfect segue, I think, right into our show today and exactly why I brought you on. I'm going to start with one listener question. We've got a little bit of a cleanup to do in the mailbag, and then we'll jump into the interview. Rain, I'll let you answer this one. And it's kind of a lengthy one, but I think it provides a little bit of context as to what's going on. This question comes to us via an email from John Ritter in Alaska. So that's uh, Cluebird number one of where he's coming from. He asks, watching the F-22 station at the base I'm on, so I'm guessing Elmendorf, yeah. I've noticed that they always fly in groups of two or more, most often in even numbers, and this makes sense to me. But when landing, sometimes two aircraft flying almost on top of one another will line up on the runway, and the lower aircraft will then drop its landing gear and descend to make contact with the runway, while the higher aircraft will hold steady within about 100 meters of the lower one until his wheels are down. And at that point, the higher aircraft will throttle up and re-enter the landing pattern, eventually coming around to land itself. Occasionally, the lower aircraft will descend toward the runway and then wave off at the last second, and both aircraft will ascend and go around. Is this a more experienced pilot walking a less experienced counterpart through the landing process and the newer pilot goofing up on the landing, or is it some sort of close order drill type of training? John, thanks for your question. Rain, what are you thinking? Uh, one of two things are happening here. Yep. I think one, it could be an emergency aircraft and they're getting chased to land safely, but more than likely, and more often you'll have check rides going on. So every year you have to have an instrument check ride, which means you're qualified to operate in the national airspace system, shoot approaches, safely land, take off the jet. So guys will go out there and you'll have an evaluator who will chase you through your landing. One of the requirements on the check ride is for that evaluator to observe that jet landing in the touchdown zone prescribed by that manual. So they'll chase them to the jet touches down. They'll stay about a hundred feet above them. And then once the, the jet that's getting the check ride done lands, the evaluator will pull closed and land right behind them. Yep. I would agree hundred percent. And then for the go-arounds, sometimes they just have to show that they can execute that and uh, they'll yep. do a low approach and then complete another pattern or whatever it is. So yeah, John, I think uh, it's pretty straightforward. Just like Rain mentioned, I think we've got that one uh, nailed down. Thanks for your question again. All right, Rain. Well, that'll uh, do it for listener questions today. So let's just jump into the interview. Uh, you had a chance to preview this ahead of time. Any thoughts before we jump in? I really enjoyed this episode. I was fortunate to meet Bud Anderson twice while I was on the air show circuit just listening to the experience he went through, what those men and women had to deal with is incredible. To me, it's humbling. I, I mean, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. It's a really good episode and an opportunity to listen to guys, the, literally the shoulders of giants we stand on. It's Colonel Bud Anderson that we're standing on. So it's a great episode. Absolutely. Well, with all that, let's roll it. Well, welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode in our World Bird series this time on the iconic North American Aviation P-51 Mustang. And today, I am so fortunate to be joined by a distinguished visitor, World War II, Korean, and Vietnam War veteran, Colonel Clarence Bud Anderson. Colonel Anderson was born and raised in California and moved across the country to attend George Washington University. And during his time there in 1941, he earned his private pilot's license through the Civilian Pilot Training Program, 
And following graduation, he entered the United States Army Aviation Cadet Program, where he received his wings and commission in September of 1942. Upon completion of flight school, he was thrust into combat in World War II, where he served two combat tours, escorting heavy bomber over Europe in the P-51 Mustang. He flew 116 combat missions and destroyed 16 and a quarter enemy aircraft in aerial combat and another one on the ground. His 30 years of continuous military service also included duty as commander of an F-86 squadron in post-war Korea, commander of an F-105 wing in Okinawa, and commander of the 355th Tactical Fighter Wing in Southeast Asia, where he flew bombing strikes against enemy supply lines. He also has an extensive flight testing background spanning a 25-year period, including positions such as the Chief of Fighter Operations at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, where he conducted the initial development flights on the F-84 Parasite Fighter, modified to be launched and retrieved from the very large B-36 bomber, and was also the Chief of Flight Test Operations and Deputy Director of Flight Tests at Edwards Air Force Base, California, where he flew the Century Series fighters. Over the course of his career, Colonel Anderson has flown over 130 different types of aircraft and has logged over 7,500 hours. After retiring from the United States Air Force in 1972, Colonel Anderson worked for the McDonald Aircraft Company and completed his autobiography titled To Fly and Fight, Memoirs of a Triple Ace, among a multitude of other appearances, lectures, and aviation projects. Colonel Anderson recently turned 99 in January of 2021 and is the highest scoring living U.S. fighter ace and the only surviving U.S. triple ace. It is with great pleasure that I welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Colonel Bud Anderson. Sir, welcome to the show. I'm so happy you're here. Glad to be here. I want to remind you that I'm 99 years old, and I use that as an excuse for forgetting things, (laughs) losing track of things. Don't you worry about it. You've earned every one of those 99 years. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm so happy I get to talk to you today, and I'm so thankful you're willing to sit down and share with us your experiences and tell your stories. I know you have plenty of them, and you've been around the block, obviously, like we've talked about, and you've got some uh, experience across various aircraft over your days, both in service and in after service. But is there anything I might have missed in that fairly lengthy bio of what you've done in your lifetime? That's about right. Very good. Well, the focus of our conversation today is going to be about the Mighty P-51 Mustang. And the thing I like to do and and the thing I like to focus on, especially during these Warbird series, when I have somebody that flew the aircraft that we're going to talk about into combat, was where were you introduced to the aircraft? Was it something like an air show or did one fly over your house or what was your first experience with it? My first experience with the P-51, for any model, mm-hmm. was uh, in the theater. So in Europe, when you first showed up, that was the first time you really ever flew it? Yeah. So was there any training that you went through in the United States beforehand? Oh, yeah. Okay. I went through a pretty extensive training Okay. using the P-39 aircraft. Okay, the Air Cobra, is that right? Yeah. Okay. What happened was... Uh, I got out of flying school. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And we needed pilots in every category, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you could convince your instructor you'd be a good fighter pilot, your chances were pretty good of daily getting to do that. And so when I uh, graduated, I did get to go to a fighter pilot replacement fighter group. Okay. Trained for about three months. And then you went somewhere in the world to uh, join a fighter group and fight the war. I see. I in see. my case, when my uh, three months was up, 
I said, no, no, you, 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 Bud Anderson, mostly my peers, you guys are going to go to Tonopah, Nevada and join the uh, 357 fighter group that's being activated for World War II. Okay. It's the first time that group was ever, you know, it was just born right there. Okay. That gave me a whole new training cycle, another three, four months. And then we got our own pilots and our own crews and uh, trained together. Then we deployed. We wondered where we'd go, you know, flying P-39s, probably North Africa or Southeast Asia. Yeah. And I said, oh, no, you guys are going to go to England, to the European theater, and you're going to go over there. And actually, we were supposed to join the Ninth Air Force first. That's where we were assigned. They're the ones that were going to fight the ground support of the invasion. Are you talking about the Normandy invasion? Yeah. So uh, what happened? Got to go a little bit into philosophy here first. Sure. The Army Air Corps thought that they could, this was a strategic air war concept. Yes. The bomber people in the Air Corps, we didn't have an Air Force in those days, was uh, with the U.S. Army Air Corps. Yes. They had this theory that the bombers would always get through, no matter what happened. Uh Formation of bombers could go through in the daylight. And use the uh, magic bomb site, the Norton bomb site. Yes. And they could go in there and destroy the war making capability of the enemy, and the troops could just walk in. It's a great well, theory. <laughs> well, they forgot to tell the uh, <laughs> Luftwaffe about it. <laughs> I guess they do get a say. <laughs> they were had unacceptable losses. Yeah, yeah. And the Brits told us you're not going to you're not going to do it in daylight, <laughs> but we're Americans, and so we did it our way. <laughs> and so they actually had a bombing halt in 1943, uh, about the time we got over there. All right. There was one other. The Pioneer P-51 unit was already there, already had their airplanes, and was just. Uh, getting ready for the invasion, I guess you might say. Yeah. They had P-47s and P-38s over there also. Uh And, of course, Spitfires, the Royal Air Force. But they couldn't go where the bombers wanted to go. So the Germans weren't stupid. They waited till the escort left, and then they had them. So they said, okay, number one, we got to have... We gotta have the long. We gotta have escort fighter escort all the way. Yeah. And they said, uh, "Oh, this P fifty one. You know, we understand it has longer range, and it's already in the theater. So they borrowed the Pioneer Group was borrowed to the Eighth Air Force. Okay. And they were so successful that the Eighth Air Force demanded." that they get the Mustangs. And so who's the next one to come in? Our group, our fighter group, was scheduled to come in. We were transferred to the 8th Air Force. And that meant I would probably fly aerial combat my whole tours. The whole time. 
pretty much, except wow. for the 30 days. When you were in the United States, you flew the P-39. Exclusively. Exclusively. And so when this transition for your group to be placed within the 8th Air Force happened, that's when you guys then knew you were going to fly the P-51? Is that accurate? Oh, we knew we were getting the P-51, but we didn't know. We thought we were going to go to the 9th Air Force. I see. And they transferred us to the 8th. And we became the first one in the 8th Air Force with Mustangs. I see. Okay. Well, so let's go back to the aircraft specifically, and we'll jump back into your first little bit of combat experience as we go into a little bit further down the road of the aircraft design and whatnot. But was the initial requirement for the P-51 for a long-range bomber escort fighter, or was it for something else, for some other purpose? I guess it was built to be a good all-around fighter. So that wasn't necessarily specifically designed for supporting the bomber fleets going in there because they didn't think they'd need one, I guess, probably, right? No, because it was 1940 when it was conceived. Yeah. You said you, or I guess you more alluded to, that you flew multiple variants of the P-51. Can you tell me what variants that you flew during your time? In combat, I only flew two models. Okay. The Bs and the D. The B and the D. Okay. I have three uh, B models and then one D model. One D model. And those airplanes, they were yours, right? You had one assigned to you and you flew that pretty much the whole time unless it broke or something? The B models, uh, we didn't have enough airplanes and we had to share them. Okay. My first one got shot on with another pilot. <laughs> okay. Good caveat. <laughs> My second one, I think it was got shot down also. Oh, my goodness. My third B, I kept, and I shot most of my airplanes down with that airplane. Did you name your airplane? <laughs> yes. What was the name of that airplane? Old Crow. Old Crow. That's great. And just for clarification, there is an Old Crow flying around right now, right? Is that correct? Four of them. There are four of them. Flying right now, three. There's three. Okay. And just regular people that have owned P-51s decided to paint it and make it look like the one you flew? They weren't regular people. <laughs> <laughs> well, not military-centric personnel, we'll call it. Yeah. Well, most Jack Roush and NASCAR fame. Yes. He owned four NASCAR teams at one time. What you're saying is he can afford... To own and fly a P-51. Excellent. He built two. Oh, my goodness. No, I mean, he had three at one time. Oh, my goodness. On the old crow, he built a D first. All right. He sold that to um, Jim Hagedorn, who was the CEO of Scott's Miracle World. Oh, wow. All right. F-16 fighter pilot. Uh-huh. Then he built a brand-new Bravo model with a Malcolm Hood from scratch. Oh, wow. He got a wreck out of a lake. All right. Had a data plate. So he built a new airplane all around it. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. <laughs> new wings, new fuselage. And, of course, uh, he's big into the engines. He repairs Rolls-Royce engines in his shops. He has such a capability. Wow. And has enhanced the engine by building a new camshaft, a roller camshaft instead of a finger camshaft. 
he builds new cylinders, valves, and all that, so the guys can keep their airplanes going. Wow, that's great. All right, well, so like you said, the aircraft first flew in 1940, and they built one aircraft with an Allison V-1710 engine that was also used on the P-38s, 39s, and 40s. But that wasn't American-centric, right? That was initially built for the British? Correct. They called theirs the Mark I, and I think there was a naming convention change. North American had named it something, and then the British decided to name it something else. And we're, I guess, happy to report that the Mustang was a British invention as opposed yes. to an American invention. And so that's why it's called the Mustang, because everybody liked that a lot more than, than what North American had decided to call it. So throughout its life, there were over 15,500 of these aircraft built across all the different variants and everything like that. And you finished your career in the Mustang in a D model. Is that accurate? Correct. One of the listeners that had submitted a question had asked about the bubble canopy. Did you get to fly with before the bubble canopy and then after the bubble canopy at all? I flew with three different types of enclosures, the early Bs and Cs, which were the same airplane. They were just manufactured at a different place. The Cs were from Dallas, and the uh, Bs were from Los Angeles area. I forget Inglewood or where it was. Yeah. What did you find was a better, I guess, canopy was what Matthew McDonough was asking. Was the B and the C model version better, or was the D model better? Well, the production Bs had what I call a birdcage canopy, and it opened up like this. Okay, sideways. Uh Uh-huh. But the Brits, when they got it, they didn't like it. So they took that canopy off, made a little fishbowl, dropped right in that hole with the rollers and brought it back and forth. Uh And that fishbowl, you could look out and count the engine stacks. Okay, so you could look over the side of the body. You could almost look around that way. (laughs) (laughs) Look way back over your shoulder, just lean back and tilt your head. This way. Yeah. I would say that that was as good or maybe slightly better than the uh, D canopy, which is the classic big canopy. Oh, really? Okay. Well, the D was better. Just the airplane overall was better. Yeah. You could not count the stacks with the D canopy. With the D canopy. I see. Okay. The the British uh, Purchasing Commission is what kind of started the process, like we discussed, and they built about 920 of the Mark 1s. Then they had a Mark 2 via the XP-51, and then a Mark 1A, and so on and so forth. And you've obviously flown the Bs, the Cs, the Ds. At the end of the day, there were some Ks, and it converted into uh, basically post-war Korea fighter for a period of time. Is that accurate? Yeah, they had the H model, Mm -hmm. and I've flown that quite a bit, too. And how was your experience in that compared to the previous? Afterwards, not in combat. Not in combat, okay. So more like training? post-World War II? They were used in training, but they were fighters. No, they were fighter bombers. Yeah, okay. When it comes to performance, did you get both of the engine types that had been placed in there, the Allison Merlin, the Packard Merlin, or the Rolls-Royce Merlin, I guess? The early airplanes? Yeah. Uh, No, I did not fly them. Okay, so yours was exclusively the Rolls-Royce Merlin? Okay. There was a listener that had asked a question about the comparing the two. So incidentally for the information. Yeah. We were building those engines here in the United States. 
course, we nationalized our industries and uh, the Packard Motor Car Company was building Rolls-Royce engines. They just took the plans and built them in their factories? Well, we re-engineered it for mass production. Okay, all right. We were furnishing the engines to England more than they were building their own because we could mass produce them. Oh, yeah. The industrial complex within the United States is at least definitely of the time. And, and even to some extent now is very, very impressive compared to, to yeah. some of the rest of the world, for sure. Another like similar technical question that one of our listeners had asked, John Clark wanted to know the radiator placement was a key factor in the Mustang's performance. But how much, if any, of the uh, mid-fuselage radiator concept was created before the NA-73 design commenced, i.e. before the very initial process of the P-51 design period. Did you have any knowledge on that at all? Well, I don't think that NA-73 design, I think it had a streamlined radiator system. Yes. And it was only in the first ones that went to the Royal. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) That's fine. That's a lot more technical question than I'm used to asking. Yeah, but by the time we got up with the Rolls-Royce engines, then they had the design of the radiator that stuck out slightly in the bottom yes there's a feature about that that maybe is controversial the way they designed that thing it brought in hot air and then it it opened it up and uh, the cooling thing Uh may have given it some thrust oh if you closed it off and kept the hotter air enough thrust and offset the drag of the thing being below the airplane yes okay i think it was probably a puff (laughs) (laughs) just a little taste nothing major there it's obviously a world war ii era aircraft so in terms of flight control system you're just a cable and pulley kind of system are they solid pieces of metal pushing everything exactly we had no boost no boost or anything right all right perfect and you've got a few hours under your belt flying the p-51 how easy was it to fly? Oh, it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Was it maybe a good way to ask it? Is it well balanced? There's not really a, you know, the yeah. nose doesn't really hunt or there's no unevenness to it at all. Yeah. I thought it was very harmonized, uh, very friendly. <laughs> <laughs> was it forgiving as a pilot for young uh, inexperienced aviators? Was it kind of forgiving or no? I thought so. Uh, it did not a bad stall characteristic it's general it warned you yeah and you recover from it very easily well funny enough you mentioned stalls and we had another question from joe kunzler and he does dcs have you heard of dcs before digital combat simulator no it's kind of like a video game where you have people that link up on the internet and fight against each other using airplanes all different kinds of aircraft but they fly against each other and he wanted to know that from his time flying on the computer, not actually in an aircraft, but he said that the stall, it seemed like it was relatively easy to stall the P-51. He compared that to also in in the simulator flying the Spitfire, and it seemed like the stall wasn't maybe as easy to do in a Spitfire, or maybe it was more easy to do in a Spitfire on the computer game. Did you get a chance to fly the Spitfire as well, and could you make a comparison? I flew the Spitfire one flight, Okay. And it was a um, Mark II with a uh, wooden two-bladed propeller. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. 
Sounds really an early air. Yeah, sounds very early in the development. Since I got one flight on it by a bootleg system. (laughs) What did it cost you to go fly that? Well, what happened when we got over there? And you talked about how did we train, you know. We hadn't even seen the airplane. Okay. And the first one we see, we're going to get to fly it. We had plenty of fighter time. Yeah. But we send a guy up to the port where they were reassembling them, and they'd fly them once somebody up there. We'd get somebody to say, hey, how do you start this thing? And bring it home and then check out the next guy. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So when I uh, was getting ready, the group commander says, hey, bud, you're going to go to the Royal Air Force Central Gunnery School for flight instructors in gunnery. Oh, very cool. And you flew Spitfires in the course. And he says, will you take a P-51 and that'll give you a little more flying time. And then, so I got 35 hours in the airplane before we went into combat. Oh, wow. When I was there, this uh, South African guy in the Royal Air Force, and he was a name ace. I don't know who he was. Mm -hmm. I can't remember his name. But he came to me and he says, you know, I sure would like to fly a P-51. And I said, well, I sure would like to fly a Spitfire. (laughs) I think we could arrange that. (laughs) So without asking Uncle Sam, I let him fly my airplane and he let me fly his. That's a good trade system. I like that. That sounds fun. (laughs) (laughs) If you know what the answer is, don't ask. That's right. That's right. If if you already know, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission sometimes, right? Well, so back to the original question, did you try to stall it or were you just kind of messing around? I did not stall it. Okay. I wouldn't think so. That would be probably, if you're getting a chance to fly it, maybe for the only time, that's the last thing I would think of going to do. I've talked to guys that fly them and they fly different. Okay. They like the uh, Mark 9. I'm probably got it screwed up. That's fine. I think it was the Mark 9 was a really good flying machine. Yeah. You yeah. look back at the history of aircraft, especially during a combat situation like World War II, where the advancements with the aircraft happened on a regular basis. And so to say that one aircraft one day is going to be the same as the next day is maybe questionable at best you're talking, you know, by the end of the P-51's lifespan, the letter H as the, the model number, basically, that means that a lot of changes happened over time. So I don't fault you for not knowing we'll transition kind of into utilizing the aircraft and flying the aircraft in combat for your air to air combat. Like you said, what was, um, I guess from the beginning of when you began and you were there for about 14, 15 months in theater, is that accurate? Well, it's, uh, yeah, if you count, uh, I had a 30-day R&R between tours. I see. Okay. So actual combat months in combat would have been six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten, eleven months, something maybe? I think our group was well, in combat for 14 months. All right. From when you began, and this kind of goes back to you know the story that you were telling at the outset of our discussion here today, what was your role or your mission when you started flying P-51s for your unit? Bomber escort. It was exclusively bomber escort. Did you guys go and do fighter sweep as well? Not really. No. Would they send another airplane in lieu of P-51s to go do that more? Or is it just kind of luck of the draw? 
I guess we made one fighter sleep. <laughs> Not a regular occurrence. For training, actually, over in France. Fighter sleeps, uh, I think, were left to the British short-range things. I see. Okay. P-47s and P-38s might have made a lot of fighter sleeps, too. I don't know. Sure. Okay. For those bomber escort missions, how long was your average sortie? About four and a half hours. Four and a half hours. That's a pretty long time. You know, there's kind of the intricacies of the human body. And, you know, that's a long time to be flying in an airplane. One of the fun questions we like to ask is during a, you know, four and a half, five hour sortie, if you had nature calling, what would you do? Oh, well, in my case, I was 22 years old. So I had a young bladder. <laughs> so just hold it is what you're saying. In my case, that's what I did. <laughs> Any other uh, techniques that you heard from anybody around the... Uh... Oh, yeah. oh, it had a relief tube. Oh, did it? I did not know that. A tube with a little funnel. Uh-huh. But the problem was that we're flying at 35,000 feet. Very, very cold. Yeah, that's true. It could plug up with ice and you end up with a, <laughs> a big cup full. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a dangerous situation. <laughs> Longest mission I ever flew was on D-Day, six hours and 55 minutes long. Oh, my goodness. I had excess fuel, a very good reserve when I landed. Wow. No kidding. That's incredible. Well, you know, in the Pacific, those guys are the ones that flew the long missions. Definitely. They were flying seven hours would be a normal mission. Normal mission length. And that's with an external drop tank or two? Absolutely. Yeah. And with us too. Same, same had, for you guys. Did you guys just have a handle to release that when you needed to get rid of it? Or how did you guys eject yeah. it from your aircraft? They were attached to the bomb racks. So you pickled them off with a uh, little button on top of the stick. Was it an electrical charge that would go out and release them? Yes. Okay. There was various sizes of those things, external tanks. Uh-huh. When we first started with a 75-gallon uh, aluminum tank, and, of course, we're dropping them all over Germany and making <laughs> aluminum and make more airplanes. Yeah. And so the Brits invented this, um, we called it the paper tank, but it was paper and resin, you know, pressed together, resin, paper, and resin, paper, and resin, around and around front cylindrical aerodynamic and everything yeah. yeah and we carried 108 gallons in that they work fine you just couldn't go very fast with them yeah then clearly they couldn't get used again by the germans they'd be squished as pancakes when they hit the ground i'm sure yeah <laughs> and we're dropping paper over there instead of aluminum that's right well, let's see. So as far as tactics are concerned, when you guys were flying bomber escort, what would you guys kind of set yourselves up around the bomber force as, or how would that interaction with the bombers look? That's a little bit of a long story. What kind of condensed version you could get? Was it, you just join up for an hour and then leave them or how would that look? Well, when we first went over there, we didn't have very many P-51s or airplanes. And so we had a relay system. It goes, some of the P-47 and the P-38s would take them out, and we'd right. join them, take them to the target, and then bring them home. Okay. 
talking about tactics. When we first got over there, the 8th Air Force was run by bomber pilots. Uh, I think it was General Aker, if I'm not mistaken. All right. And they were all bomber pilots, and they were going to prove this strategic air war concept. All they could think about was bombing and their survivability and how do we cut the rate down. So they wanted us to fly close. They said, we want to see you fly around us. And at one point, they actually asked one of the group commanders if we would fly formation with them. And when the Germans came through, just fire your guns. Jesus. (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> Seems kind of pointless. But it was their thinking. Drive the enemy away, come yeah. back. Yeah. You could go to 18,000 feet, and you had to come back, break off the attack, and come back. Stay with the bombers. Yes. And that's what we did. Well, in order to have the invasion, they had to defeat the Luftwaffe first. Yes. That was primary. And they weren't doing a good job of it. They were bombing the factories, airplanes on the fields and all this stuff. They were not defeating the Luftwaffe. General Arnold, chief of staff, made a big change. He fired the commander of the Acre, and he put Jimmy Doolittle in charge. And I don't think we have to introduce Jimmy Doolittle. To not at all. He had a different background, bombers, fighters. and Yeah everything and he had orders when he came over there he says look the Luftwaffe has to be defeated before we have this invasion he went over there with that that was his primary orders Mm -hmm. I read this in his book I didn't know this at the time he came down to visit the 8th fighter command he had the bomber command and the fighter command yeah there was a big sign over the door when he came in that said the mission of the 8th Fighter Command is to bring the bombers back safely or something like that. Yep. He said, who put that up there? He said, I don't know. It was here when I got here, General Kepner. He says, well, tear it down. The mission of the 8th Fighter Command is to destroy the Luftwaffe. (laughs) And he says, from now on, it was official policy, pursue and destroy he said, from now on, when you engage the enemy, you take them to the ground and kill them. Yeah. No more 18,000-foot stuff. But that did give us a – we'd keep a squadron close to our section of bombers. Yes. Can you imagine a 1,000 bombers in a big stream? I mean, God. Only in the movies. Only in the movies. It's incredible how many airplanes they would put up at one time. Streaming uh, – It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today.
trails. It was really incredible to it, see him. And then you add another eight, 900 fighters. It, it, was, it was even worse. That's just incredible. But that let us take us some other of P-51s and roam out, out ahead of them, intercept these big formations. They'd fly in the, what he called them, a gaggle. Okay. Not a formation. <laughs> yeah. They would try to hit us with a bunch of bomb, you know, come attack them head on. They get out here in front and uh, come in like this. And that was one of their tactics that changed a little bit from the conventional pursuit curve attacks. Yes. Well, you're obviously uh, a skilled air combatant and you've got some time behind the iron cross, if you will. And so during these bomber escort missions, when you would go and break away to go take down whatever types of aircraft you were going after, can you kind of walk through that experience with your 16 and a quarter kills of aerial combat? Let me just finish one other call. Oh, yeah. When Doolittle gave us this pursue and destroy, he turned loose a bunch of eager, pissed-off fighter pilots. We'd been flying there with both hands tied behind our back. Yeah. But we felt like that. We wanted to do it, you know. Mm -hmm. That's how we defeated the Luftwaffe, by killing their experienced pilots. And they didn't have a good replacement training prison. So the Allied pilots eventually killed the Luftwaffe by killing their pilots. Definitely. That allowed the invasion and then the eventual downfall of Germany. Yeah. Well, so let's jump into how we go and do that. So you've got your 16 and a quarter kills and you're sitting there kind of close, I guess, in your gaggle formation around the bombers and somebody gets spotted and everybody's talking on the radio to each other, calling out the fighters and you peel off, walk me through what that kind of felt like, I guess. And then, and what you had to do with your aircraft to get into a position of advantage. Well, that's like asking what is a typical dog fight? <laughs> and there is none. Absolutely not. You know, if you play cards, you shuffle off and you got a hand, I got a hand. Mm -hmm. You have to play with that hand that you're dealt with. Now, you may have better skills than the other person. You see, so that's also involved. But whether you're attacked or you're doing the attacking or whether you came head on, it's hard to describe a typical dogfight. I like to get it into a turning dogfight. Okay. And then I felt I would have the advantage. The war in Europe was fought at a high altitude, and that's why... The P-51 was one of the best airplanes over there because it had a two-stage, two-speed supercharger. Mm -hmm. You went up to 17,000, 18,000 feet, then the high blower cut in, and so then you had that same thing up to 30,000 feet. Mm -hmm. But pretty good power manifold pressure. And so um, I don't know, I'd have to just pick one and tell you when I, but it'd be the one I have the little video on where we were on the close escort. We were the ones that had to stay behind and do that while the other guys went out and looked for them. Okay. And we, our flight of four was attacked. We were above the bombers cruising along in a flight of four 
uh-huh. with the finger four. Yep. And that's one thing the Germans did in that was finger four, and you know what that is. Absolutely. I like to think it was a fluid two or something. <laughs> because the flight leader and the element leader, when you got engaged, they were the shooters, and then these guys were the, you know. Supporting fighters, lookouts, all that. Yeah. So uh, we get attacked. We were just making a turn to go up front. So it was a perfect attack. They were coming down at us like this. And they were in a string formation. And just as my, I looked back and just as my wingman yelled, hey, we got the hun in the sun (laughs) (laughs) coming in from five o'clock from behind. Yeah. So I'd already started my break. So we broke and went head on with them. Mm -hmm. They came down and we just went through each other. Nobody could get a shot off or anything. Yeah. So I'm thinking, oh, these guys are going to go through and then go down to the bombers. But they were attacking us. They were after us. He starts to turn, a big left turn. And this is up at 27, 28,000 feet. So, boy, of course, immediately I get into the left turn and we're going around like this. And that's what I wanted to do. And at that altitude, I knew I was superior. And I could see immediately that these were the 109Gs. They had a big bump out the left side of the engine, which Mm -hmm. was the supercharger. Yeah. Their best high-altitude fighter, and in my opinion, our best altitude. So we go around twice, and I'm gaining on them, slowly gaining on them. Finally, they see that, and they roll out and fly straight and level east. And we're down just into Germany, down in southern Germany. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we cut arms and uh, follow them. One guy, the, the tail end Charlie, starts to climb. Well, I didn't want to let him get up here and fly under and let him drop down on me, so I sent my element after him. Okay. He followed him and shot him down, and we joined up later. So we got three and two. So, of course, the best way of shooting somebody down, we had fixed sights, mm-hmm. just a ring and bead electronic at least okay it was an iron and <laughs> so get back on a mustang my mustang come up here to the 300 yards and then start firing you don't want to be out here you can do it but it takes a lot more skill so that's what i did just drive up behind this guy fire the burst good burst and uh because start smoking coolant probably at the beginning Mm-hmm. And then a little black smoke mark. He he does something idiotic. He rolls over, flies upside down. Why? I have no idea. <laughs> maybe he thought I'd follow him and fall out of it or something. Yeah, maybe. But I'm sitting back there, right set up, very comfortable, and <laughs> he's up there, slammed up against the top of the canopy, oh, and then firing another burst into it. <laughs> And he's really, he's gone now. Yeah. So fell off. So now it's uh, two and two. And we get up there, and I have a pretty good head of steam going. Top speed was, of ours was, I don't know how much faster, but somewhat faster than they were at that altitude. So uh, I'm getting up there. 
one of them rolls over and runs. The other one makes a hard climbing turn. And I'm going so fast, I can't make that turn. Okay. I could probably throw my flaps down and uh, a little bit and come off on the power. Yeah. And stuck in there. But then I'd lose all my energy. And then I'd have to start all over. Yeah. With it. Didn't want to do that. So he's here. He's going this way or climbing. So I just went across his path and then pulled up. And I'm looking back down at him. You kind of just pulled straight back and were kind of trying to stay above him. Yeah, he was like this. And I'm over here. Yeah. want to see him go like that so I could drop on his tail. But he reverses his turns. And now he's trying to come up after me. Yeah. Now I felt pretty safe, but you don't want somebody behind you. No, <laughs> not at all. So my wingman is coming up over here, you know, below me. Yeah. And I look back and I see him slide over like that. He's going after my wingman. Yeah. Well, smart move. He, he might be in range. I didn't know. You know, I can't tell. I said, well, John, He's uh, on your tail now. If you want to take some evasive action, I'll cover him. He goes off like this. Sure enough, the German follows him. And now he's, he's jinking and zagging. And, and there's three of us now. But I'm the last guy, and I'm out of range a little bit. Closing uh-huh. on him. And he sees that right away. The German does. He makes another hard climbing turn. The level's out. It's the same situation. So uh, we go through this one more time. Same deal. He yep. comes after me, stalls out, and then we reverse, and I'm on his tail again. Okay, so he tries the same tactic. And I said, this time, I said, God damn, I don't want to be <laughs> in front of that guy. Yeah. <laughs> it was a little bit different angle. It wasn't 90 degrees. Now it's about like this. 45 off or something like that. So I said, God damn, I'm going to get inside this guy and get a shot at him. So I suck it in and he sees that. And so he straightens out. That's all my angle off. And then he pulls up like this, tries to out zoom me like I'd been doing to him. Uh He had to know he couldn't. Keep doing that. I would think. He pulls it up like that, that he tries to drag me along like this, like this. And I just get over, I got a little sight picture, fired a shot. A little good burst, and a couple of tracers off the wingtip. Now, on a P-51, you had to have that ball in the middle, you know, the needle ball. Yeah. And was that just because of the gun placement and where the bullets would impact? You know, with a propeller, you got torque to consider. Okay. And if you're a little bit off like that, see, you're going to be shooting out here when the airplane's over here. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So I saw this tracer and I just gave it a little bit of rudder, left rudder. Yeah. Check my ball and I gave him a, ooh, a really good burst. And oh, I got him all over the cockpit, the engine, all over the central part of the airplane. So then I quit shooting and kept shot up right alongside of him. And the thing is just kind of windmilling now. Mm-hmm. And I'm right on his wing. 
and I'm kind of coming up underneath and I can see the grease and oil close. Yeah. yeah. Already there's smoke in the cockpit. I can't see anything but smoke. Yeah. And I'm running on his wing and he rolls over there from, say, 27,000 feet. He goes down vertical, absolutely vertical. I'm following him and he's leaving a tremendous smoke trail. Two mile long black smoke, just dirty black smoke. I went through 20,000 feet faster than I've ever been. And so I come off on the throttle and just started orbiting them down, going down in a spiral down. Yeah. And I'm looking down at him and I'm looking at, oh, here's on the ground, you know, well, here's a shadow with the smoke. Yeah. And he and his shadow met. Just a tremendous explosion. Wow. And God, that was, I'll tell you that we'd been attacked by four ME109s. We turned the tables on them, yeah. shot three of them down. It was exciting. Yeah, I'm sure the adrenaline was absolutely flowing. And then the fight's over. And, and now it's not that there's nothing else around you, but you know, now you're trying to get back with your wingman and figure out what's next. So what happens next after an engagement like that? Where do you go or what do you do? What's the plan? Well, I, of course, pulled out of the dive. My wingman was over, and he was just trying to stay in the area. And yeah. he did see this guy get hit. You know, the big smoke in the oh, air. I mean, he saw that. Yeah. He's coming over. He didn't know whether it was me or the German, though. Oh, that's a good consideration. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. He kind of followed down Eddie Simpson in his wing. He followed that guy up and shot him down while he was climbing out. Yeah. He just came back, and we were in the same vicinity and could get together. Then, in our case, we went up back to the joint, the bombers, and uh, carried us the mission. The mission. No kidding. Wow, that's amazing. That's kind of a long story, but that's uh, a great one. No, that's a great one. That really, I think, kind of colors and paints. Most of my kills were probably the guy didn't see us more surprise kind of thing than anything it's too late. Yeah. Well, let's keep moving forward here. When it comes to shooting somebody down, I guess you were talking about small bursts of fire and that kind of thing. How long are we talking when you're squeezing the trigger a second or two? Yeah. We only had 20 seconds worth of fire. 20 oh, to wow. 30. Okay. 20 to 30, depending on how the rate of fire and uh, how you could pack them in. Yeah. Yeah. I forget how many rounds we had, but, the rounds, it don't matter. It's the time, the firing time you have. Uh-huh. We always counted on 30 seconds, maybe. Okay. I know you talked about the external fuel tanks were on the bomb racks. Did you get to drop any bombs while you're flying as well? Oh, yeah. During the uh, first 30 days after D-Day, the invasion, the 8th Air Force, they had two Air Forces covering for ground support. Yeah. So they made a path from Paris down to Normandy. That's where all the railroads were and the roadways. Mm -hmm. We went to the same 100 square miles with every airplane we had twice a day with orders to shoot anything traveling south. Anything. Any military target that looked like it was moving. Anything that was moving. Oh, anything. Oh, my gosh. Wow. After two days, 
there was nothing moving. Oh, man. We caught one truck convoy. You know, we just murdered them. You didn't bring the bombs home. You didn't bring your ammunition home. So we'd tool around there until you were out of fuel looking for targets. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, it's the first day I ever dropped a, <laughs> a live bomb. I never dropped a live one before in training. We always had one that just had a little uh, poof out the tail. Yeah, yep. Strikes. Blue boys, we called them. Yeah. We're getting ready to go home, and we still got bombs. I saw a rail crossing back there, a siding. Uh-huh. And it had little cars on it. looked like that. Let's go back and check that out. So we went back, and I said, okay, I'm going to line up with them so i'm with this way so i won't miss yeah yeah <laughs> and kind of gave a low angle release you know and uh-huh. i said god i want to see what these bombs are like you know and so i rack it around real quick and try to stay close and here oh, oh. jesus there's one of the axles was going by me up in the air oh, oh man but not, not close but and i said boy, these 500-pounders are really, really something, you know. <laughs> and so we go weird. I said, all right, let's take out this bridge. And so the other guy like, went down there and his little bomb goes off. <laughs> I had hit an ammo train <laughs> for a storage, you know. For- <laughs> that was really funny. Oh, that's crazy. That's a nice little surprise or not really nice little surprise. I guess. <laughs> it's a nice story, I guess, about a funny surprise in combat. Well, that's crazy. You know, you've got enough time in this thing, I think, to know what you liked and what you didn't like about it. What were the things if, if you had had, a, you know, an unlimited supply of money, was there anything that you would have wished they would have added to it that you didn't quite like or GPS? Uh, GPS. <laughs> yeah, that's an easy one. Sure. <laughs> We flew over there, time, distance. That was the navigation? Heading, time, and distance. Yeah. Most of the time over top of an overcast. Do you have a, like a beacon, non-directional beacon finder or anything radio-wise? Yeah. If we, on the way home, we could get a DF steer. Okay. That was about the extent of your actual yeah. technological advantage there. We had a lot of practice steers. <laughs> practice stairs absolutely well of everything that was on the airplane what was your favorite feature of the aircraft or favorite thing about it, it doesn't have to be a favorite uh, feature but just any anything favorite that you liked about it well i like the things about it, it that you could reach and touch and uh, you know everything was right there in a convenient manner inside the cockpit everything was easy to reach and like a spitfire for christ's sake you take off hand on the, the wheel, uh-huh. half stick, and throttle over here. You're taking off. Okay, you get airborne, you got to go like this, grab the stick, go down here and pull the handing gear up. Okay. And you watch a new guy, he takes off and he like that. You, you know what he's doing, he's with your hands. Trying to find the landing gear handle. <laughs> I could reach down there while I'm dogfighting and grab the flaps and the handle's there where my hand goes. Yeah. And you never had to take your hand off the stick to fly the airplane or anything. It all kind of made sense how they designed it. And that's the same way with the trim wheels. You got your hand on the throttle, mm-hmm. drop your hand, you're there with the trim wheels, the yeah. rubber trim, 
and the uh, elevator trim. It seems like they really thought through it. Heavy G-forces, you could trim it out. It was all automatic, you know, when you're flying. Yeah, you don't think about it. You could touch anything. You had to lean over just a little bit to get the gear handle, but that wasn't bad. That's not a big deal. You're only doing that twice a mission, so it's not like that big a deal. The thing you had to deal with is the torque and the propeller. For, obviously, there's a huge P factor, the torque that you're talking about with the propeller and everything like that. How well was that trimmed out from the rudder perspective, or were you having to? Yeah, you could control it very easily. Very easily. Well, that's awesome. So when you look back at all your time flying the aircraft, what's your most favorite memory of flying the P-51, do you think? Shooting down a bad guy. Shooting down a bad guy. <laughs> In your story, you talked about flying right up next to him, kind of off his wing and looking at the canopy and everything. Do you remember looking back at that time and thinking to yourself, you know, that guy might be dead or anything like that? Like the, I guess the human connection kind of piece to it, did that register really at all with you? Let's talk about that whole part of it. Fear, you know, when you first go into combat, just looking down at the ground, the enemy territory, you get an emotional effect. If I go down there, I'm going to be in Badland. You know? That's right. We actually had cases where the Germans murdered the pilots. And uh, amazingly, there's evidence that the German government punished them later on, took them to court. Yeah. So we had a saying, uh, if you made your first five or ten sorties flights, missions. Yes. Your chance of finishing your tour went up expeditionally. Yeah. I didn't say that right, but... I think we all knew what you meant. Yeah. Getting a guy through those first missions is important. That's where we lost them early, early. Like our squadron, 28 guys that deployed overseas. When the thing was all over, exactly 50% of them were either killed or prisoner of war. My goodness. And then we had a lot of replacements with us. But everyone we lost, we uh, got five of those guys. It was an attrition-type war. It definitely was. Then about fear. Okay, you're going over there, and oh, here comes contrails you know, above you. And Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, we know who you are. You could tell how they flew. And then a 109 looked. It was a little skinny slender thing and it flew tail high like that okay you know the way they flew i had no trouble to recognize them miles away as far as i could see i could recognize them yeah there's a lot of anticipation about that time yeah but then when i was actually engaged in combat you know going around looking across the circle and he's looking at me <laughs> You really couldn't see him that easy, but <laughs> he knew he was there. He knew I was there. <laughs> you know, the guy's trying to kill you, and you're so pumped up with uh, adrenaline. People don't believe me when I say this, that I was not afraid. I was so pumped up, so engaged in trying to survive, trying to kill him, that I was not afraid. After it was all over, my feet are shaking on the rudders. <laughs> oh, yeah. To get it into a 
perspective of uh, somebody that doesn't fly, you know. Yeah. I'm here in Auburn, California, and the high Sierras is very close, and it's winter time, mm-hmm. and we've had rain, snow. You're coming home, and it's a bright, sunny day, but it's very cold. We got what they call black ice. You can't see it. Yeah. So you're coming down out of the mountains. You had a really great weekend, and you're driving around. They go around this corner, and all of a sudden, you're out of control. You don't throw up your hands to say, oh, my God, I'm going to die. You go in there, you stare into it, stare, you know, get it back in control and get it going again. And then after it's all over, (laughs) your feet might be shaking on the brakes at the accelerator, if that makes sense to you. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, you're going to pull off to the side there and take a minute to compose yourself and The adrenaline rushing through your body is definitely making your body work hard and and do what it needs to do to survive when you're going through it. But after the fact, if you say I wasn't scared, I wasn't scared. You know, if you use it in context of what I said, yeah, there was times when I was plenty scared too. (laughs) It sounds like what you're saying is you're scared to some extent leading up to it, but in the heat of the moment, you're not thinking about being scared. It's only once you have time to think about it when you kind of think about your, the death. Yeah. I can remember my first combat sortie, that first moment taken off. And I was in Iraq on the base. You feel pretty secure. You feel pretty comfortable, but you take off that first time and you cross the fence line of the base and you look down, you're like, Oh, what have I done? (laughs) And then, you know, like you said, it takes a few sorties to get your feet, you know, wet and get comfortable doing the mission. And, and maybe you calm down a little bit about that aspect of things, but then it's the next engagement that you're going to about to fly or drop a bomb on them or something. And you yeah. get that adrenaline yeah. rise. So yeah, I completely understand. I hate to say it, but <laughs> that I enjoyed combat, but on the other end, I have to say it was the most exciting thing I've done in my life. Oh, I don't doubt it. I mean, the stories that come out of world war two, and obviously there have been numerous movies and books and, We'll talk about your book here in a little bit, but all of these things that you got to experience firsthand and we got to relive through the movies and whatnot, like they're just incredible. And that's just one snapshot in time. You've got other wars that people fought and everything like that too. It's, it's incredible. Well, speaking of books or movies or TV, anything off the top of your head, we like to try to figure out where else we can see this aircraft and it's pretty iconic. So I don't think it's gonna be too hard to find, but any movies that are your favorite that include the P-51 or books that you like to reference when you're talking about the airplane? I like to reference my website. It's just going into a big overhaul. Uh-huh. My son does it. He runs the website, and he does a lot of the work himself. Yeah. And, of course, he was a fighter pilot and an airline pilot. and He's gotten interested in the fighter group, and he's the only living guy that, really he's a de facto historian for our fighter group yeah and me and it's uh com. the new one is to fly and fight.com if you go to the first one look up bud anderson uh-huh it's a switched over it'll automatically switch you over to the new one the new one yeah fly and fight and it's got a lot about the airplane it takes you several hours to go through this 
website. It is quite the website when it comes to content. There's tons of videos. There's links to yeah, videos, stories. pictures, stories, and you can buy my book on there too. <laughs> that book is called to fly and fight memoirs of a triple ace. And obviously the story you told us here is included in there, but plenty of other stories and other nuggets of cool information that you have. Yeah, it, it's a biography and we've updated it three times, I think. Oh, wow. This latest revision, we put 40 new pictures in it, some of them in color. The rest of them are black and white, of course. Yeah, that's really cool. So we'll make sure that both websites and your book are are all in our show notes so that everybody knows where to go, where to find them. Man, what an amazing time. Uh, You have been an amazing sport about uh, coming here and chatting today, and I have learned a ton about the P-51. As iconic an aircraft as it is, there's always little bits and nuggets here and there that people just don't get to know about. So I appreciate you being able to share those with us. And, you know, just as a kind of fadeaway jumper here, is there anything else about the P-51 that you think the listeners should know that would be important? Keep the nose straight when you land. (laughs) That's some good advice right there. It's a trail dragger. The tail dragger. So would you normally land on the tail first and then the mains, or would you hit the mains first and then drop the nose? Oh, we always made wheel landings. Willings. Okay. We did that on purpose. Uh, you come in with a four ship echelon, pitch out, pitch out. And you want to try to get all four of airplanes down as quick as you can. Uh-huh. We're not in the combat zone, but you yeah. know, we could have been. So then the leader will take left or right, depending on the wind and about, Oh, third of the way down, maybe keep his tail up and then drop it down and then hit the taxiway and you look back and you want to see the other guy on the other side of the runway already down. You want to see the element leader Mm -hmm. on your side, hopefully touching down Yeah, and get them on the ground fast. You know, if a guy puts down flaps and lands in the middle of the runway on the end of the runway, uh-huh. He's got his nose up here like this. You cannot see. You can't see. Yeah. You have to zigzag when you're taxiing. You know, you've got to keep it straight. If you land it short, put it on the tail down, and your guys don't have a chance to get in there. Yeah. And you can't see anything in front of you to, to make sure you're not going to hit something. So, yeah, that's going to be a sporty experience, I'm sure, especially when not just your four aircraft are trying to land kind of all at the same time as yeah, well. Trying to get to you going to get three squadrons back on the ground. <laughs> yeah. That seems like a lot of coordination. Ned, sure, using maybe like a light gun with green, red lights kind of thing for clearance to land. We didn't use the radios. Yeah, that's probably too many airplanes at one time. Well, that's good stuff. Well, sir, before we let you go, we have one question we like to ask our guests. And I mentioned it into the bio at the beginning, but I'm assuming that's your call sign. Maybe it's just a nickname, but Bud, where did Bud come from? How'd you earn that one? Well, I'm Clarence Amel Anderson Jr. All right. When I was a little guy, they called me Buddy and it stuck. And it stuck. (laughs) Of course, I get the service. And you know what all Smitty's are, you know, Smith's, and you know what all Anderson's are, Andy. Uh-huh. I'm Andy in the service. I have a little identity crisis, I think. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. You grew up, so you changed from buddy to bud, and there you go. Well, that's good. A lot of people ask, oh, what was your call sign? Uh-huh. Were you mongoose or, you know, one of the things? That... One of those cool ice men's or something? Yeah. 
well, in uh, World War II, we didn't have those kind of call signs. Yeah. We would, like, say, our squadron was, um, we were the cement squadron. Cement squadron, okay. Cement was our, Your mascot? our squadron call sign. Oh, okay, yeah. You had cement red lead, red two, three, four. And you had blue and green, you know, how many ever flights you have. Yeah. But each guy was assigned a number. And my number was cement five, two. The only time you used that was say you got off by yourself, you shot out or something and you bailed out. Yeah. Say this is cement five, two bailing out, blah, 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 some location. And they would know who it was. Oh, wow. Okay. That was our call sign. That was our squadron or unit call sign. Okay. That makes perfect sense. When I asked call signs, that was my individual nickname call sign, you know, is boat. And yeah. I've explained that story to you. You know, normally it's for doing something stupid or whatnot. Yeah. You've got bud for, for what you grew up with and everything, but we had flying call signs as well. And your squadron would have a list of call signs you'd use and, and that kind of thing. So that makes perfect sense. Well, that's great stuff. Well, sir, I want to be completely respectful of your time. You've been so gracious with chatting with us here today. And I've learned a ton, like I said, and I know the listeners have appreciated hearing your stories and getting to experience kind of what it was like firsthand to fly the P-51 as much as possible. Anyway, it's just been a very special experience for me. And I appreciate getting to know you through our multiple conversations leading up to today and, and whatnot. And so for the listeners today, please remember to go out there and visit cebudanderson.com to go check out all the different videos, all the stories, all the pictures, and then also the follow on what's going to be www.toflyandfight.com. Again, as a redesigned website, and I've seen a, a preview of that and it looks amazing. It is quite a leap forward in uh, imagery, stories, the layout, everything. It's quite a, a great job your son has done there, sir. So please pass on our thanks for keeping that legacy alive. And uh, everybody go head out and buy Bud's book called to fly and fight memoirs of a triple ace. I've started reading into that. I haven't gotten all the way through it, but sir, I will say it's a great one. You did an amazing job and I look forward to uh, the rest of the stories that I get to see through that. So sir, once again, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And for all the listeners out there, we'll see you next time. All right. Welcome back everyone. My thanks again to Colonel Anderson for taking the time to recount his time in the P 51. And man, I think the thing that struck out to me the most were just the vividness of the descriptions from what he experienced in his time within the training program and going through the U.S., traveling to Europe, and then actual combat itself. And even though it's been so long since he last flew in combat, he's right there. He's sharp and yeah. talking about escorting a thousand bombers, eight hundred fighters in the air. <laughs> I've done red flags. I've been on the both the good and the bad side of those, blue and red. And man, I'll tell you, that is nothing like a red flag. Rain, what were you thinking through that whole thing? Yeah, I mean, same deal. I can't even fathom what that would look like. I mean, we talk like a red flag with maybe like sixty five jets yeah. on the blue side in the air and just the complexity that goes into planning that and then executing it. We have data link and all these tools to build our situational awareness, which were obviously not available to them. Yeah. Again, it's like mind boggling that I don't think I've ever seen more than 10 airplanes in the <laughs> yeah. air at one time. And that was like at the push. That was not just cruising into the target area. That's no. just craziness. No joke. Plus getting shot at the whole time yeah. as well. No, I pass uh, on hard, that one. I, he's, nope. he's got uh, bigger ones than myself. <laughs> what about that story about Jimmy Doolittle telling the eighth fighter commander to tear down the protect the bomber <laughs> sign and just go after the Luftwaffe? You think that 
would be anything you'd hear about today. No, I don't. I can't imagine that anyone would say that today. I think there's too much politics probably. Yeah. That's no. probably the best way to put it. It's very interesting. It's a different world for sure. Yeah. Anything else that stood out to you about it? I mean, it's just a staggering interview and now he's talking about actually going in and I asked the question and I'll talk about this here in a little bit, but there's a companion interview that I did with him a week later that I think you also had the chance to listen to. He'll go into what it kind of feels like to go and shoot at somebody yeah. and actually be successful at it. I mean, 16 and a quarter kills is definitely way more than I ever have. And definitely <laughs> was offered more opportunity than I ever had or will have frankly, but what else are you thinking the whole thing? I kind of, it's like you already hit on it. The, how lucid he is and how much he remembers. Cause I think even me, I'm like, I have a tough time, even my short career, like remember like, when did I go there? What did I do? And it's probably, I'm just dumb. And obviously he's a much smarter individual, but he's 99 years old. And the fact that he's able to recant and go through these experiences with such candor and such being so vivid is pretty incredible. And it's a piece of history that if not captured, will be lost. What these men did again, it's mind boggling to me. So again, just hearing the story, the entire piece of it from training to getting to combat is just phenomenal to me. Yeah. There's definitely some amazing stuff and all the little nuggets and tidbits of stuff that you can't read about in a book, or at least you can might maybe read about it, but you don't right. get the same feel, the same emotion behind it as you do from somebody that lived it and speaking to you about it. So that's good stuff. And like I mentioned before, I did do about a, another two hour zoom call with bud about a week after I interviewed this back in March and the re-recording or the, the recording on the two hour deal was him walking through a slideshow for our Patreon listeners. We're going to put that out there for you all to watch and see and hear the words as he goes and talks through the slides that he's got up there. A lot of great imagery and a lot of good stuff there when it comes to, you know, more detail about the airplanes that he flew the missions and all that kind of stuff. So just another perk that we like to give our Patreon folks and give them the opportunity to actually see him in action. Cause I see in the world of COVID and, and the recovery process, not necessarily going to get to see him give a speech or a talk like he has in the past. And, and obviously he's getting up there 99 years old. It's starting to become necessary to get these people on camera before they pass away, unfortunately. So well, awesome stuff. You know, I think one of the questions that I, have not asked my guests as much as I would have liked, or I guess since you're the first one, maybe I'll add this to the repertoire, but what's your favorite Warbird? Mine's the P-38. That's always been what it is, but Rain, what do you think yours might be? It's the Mustang for me. My grandfather was a gunner on B-17. He didn't make it to Europe. He went to the Pacific Theater. Okay. Just knowing what that Mustang did and how it turned the tide of the war for us, it's just, and also the sound of it, you know, yeah. like I've fallen in love with it. Yeah. It is a memorable sound to yeah. say the least. That's a good choice. Well, as we uh, start to wrap up the show today, Rain, what's the future look like for your podcast? A uh, little birdie told me maybe you're working on a bit of a DCS campaign. Uh, I am. Yeah. So we have one that is underworks with uh, Baltic dragon. So I know a lot of the guys in the DCS world, are very familiar with him. We're mimicking the campaign to match my last deployment. So operation Inherent resolve, uh, we're going through and building it. So it's based on, you know, the guys and girls in my squadron, the missions that were flown and looking springtime of 2022. So about three missions into the build right now. And right. I think we're really going to start hitting it heavy late this summer to try and get everything ready for next spring. So it's pretty, pretty cool. That's awesome. I think Actually, I've been approached a little bit here to start dabbling in a bit of the DCS world as well. I'm not super familiar with it. Rain, how familiar before this were you with it? Not very familiar at all. I knew it existed. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some of the videos and pictures that people yeah. have put out and it looks really cool. Time, right? I need more time to do things, but it'd be cool to 
get into it. And I think maybe this will be the one where I'm going to have to commit, right? If there's a campaign <laughs> built around, you know, my last, your name's on it. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, gotta go fly it. it. So that's right. What about the podcast itself? Any exciting guests or anything you want to mention? You know, we're releasing an episode every two weeks. I forget when this one is going to air. So it might be already out by that point, but you know, I just had an F-18 pilot Marine test pilot. He walks through his journey there. He survived an ejection, inverted at 380 feet AGL. He talks about that, which is oh just like mind boggling. Wow. Got some F-117 guys and A-10 demo pilot all coming on. So there's some cool episodes that are in the queue or out there right now. That's good. Yeah, this will be out here, uh, should be June 24th, 2021. So we'll look forward to uh, connecting to that. And we'll have a link to your website and your show in the show notes for this episode. Rain, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. It's been great to definitely reconnect. I saw you at sun and fun. And are you going to be at Oshkosh as well this year? TBD. So okay. I'm working the airline schedule and trying to figure yeah. that out, thread the needle, you know, so fair again, enough. any more days. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, absolutely. But we'll make sure that we get the word out on your show. Uh, it has been awesome to reconnect with you. So thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Um, I look forward to hearing everything you've got. I love listening to the show, so I can't wait to hear what you have coming up. Thanks, Bo. I really appreciate it. Well, as always, just a reminder that the views expressed in the presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. That will do it for us today. My thanks again to Rain for stopping by. And for those that haven't already, head on over to www.theafterburnpodcast.com to check out what he's got going on over there. We'll see you all next time for the next installment of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. But until then, get high, get fast, and do some good work. We'll see you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.